Christian Science Monitor, Vienna, June 22, 1946. The visitor to Europe receives his first emphatic shock in Vienna when he looks at the faces of people. They have a yellowish complexion and sunken cheeks. Their clothes are ill-fitting and hang loosely on shrunken bodies. They have lost an average of 35 pounds per person during the past 13 months. The writer of these words was Ernest Pisco, as a foreign correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. Eight years earlier, on the other side of World War II, he and his wife, Risa, fled Vienna, Austria. Driven out as anti-Nazi journalists, editors, publishers, intellectuals, and as persons with Jewish identity. They found a new home in the United States, a new meaning and purpose in working for the Christian Science Monitor. Ernest, as an expert on the political and social history and affairs of Central and Eastern Europe, and Risa, through her contributions of close to 150 recipes to the newspaper, drawing on her experience as a professional cook and knowledge of the rich culinary heritage of her native Austria-Hungary. Hello, I'm Jonathan Eder, host of the Mary Baker Eddy Library Seekers and Scholars podcast. One of the privileges we have at the library is to be caretaker of the archives of the Christian Science Monitor, the newspaper founded by Mary Baker Eddy in 1908. In this episode, we draw on records and articles to explore the contributions of the Piscos, focusing on themes of food, family, fortitude, and on rebuilding a future out of a discordant and uprooted past. Our guests bring both scholarly and personal insight to the subject. So I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Amy Carney to Seekers and Scholars. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Amy is an associate professor of history at Penn State Erie, the Barron College. Among her areas of specialization are modern European history and family history. Her book, Marriage and Fatherhood in the Nazi SS, was published by University of Toronto Press in 2018. Her current project focuses on two Jewish families who emigrated from continental Europe during the period of Nazi takeover, those of Walter Helene and Claude Cordy, and of Ernest and Risa Pisco and their daughter, Sue Pisco. And we have with us Dr. Eric Cordy who is very much a part of Dr. Carney's research as the grandson of Ernest and Risa Pisco on one side and of Walter and Helene Corti on the other. Eric is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Penn State University, Erie Behrend, where he served as Director of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences from 2017 to 2022. A current project for Eric is compiling his grandmother Reese's recipes from the Christian Science Monitor for publication as a cookbook. Well, welcome, Eric. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you and to have this close family connection to the subject matter we're going to be discussing. Also with us is Kendra Nordine Beato. Kendra is an award-winning staff writer and editor with the Christian Science Monitor. In addition to editing and writing food features stories for the Monitor, she launched and managed a daily recipe blog called Stir It Up that featured participating food bloggers. Kendra earned a master's in American studies from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, where her final project was titled White Sauce, Race, Class, Gender, and Boston's Scientific Cooks 
in the progressive era. Welcome, Kendra. Thank you. So nice to be here today. Amy, I'm just so curious, what drew you to the subject of the Piscos and the Cordes? This all started with an email from Eric at the time, both my colleague and my boss. So this was an email that he sent me shortly after his mother had passed. Mm. And his father had already, a few years earlier, had already passed as well. He had these autobiographies. Each of his parents had immigrated from Europe, and each of them had, uh, in the 1990s, written an autobiography for their families, for Eric and his brother, and for their sons as well. And he wanted to know, would I be interested in reading these autobiographies? And my thought was, of course, you know, here is all this, you know, this wonderful material that nobody else has seen. Mm-hmm. As a historian, of course, that was very exciting. Yeah, That's what got me started on telling the story of the Cordy and Pisco families. Amy, at the outset, I read just a little bit from a piece by Ernest Pisco when he was reporting from Vienna, Austria in 1946 in the aftermath of World War II as the country seeks to rebuild itself while enduring famine and hardship. Ten years later, he's also writing from Vienna, this time during the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. I'd love it, Amy, if you could set the stage and then read some from his piece about what is going on at that time in his former homeland. So at the end of World War II, the Soviet army occupied multiple countries in Eastern Europe. They'd first liberated those countries from German control, and then those armies stayed. And subsequently, there were communist governments established in multiple countries in Eastern Europe, Hungary included. And in the fall of 1956, there was a revolution in Hungary seeking to rid Hungary of those Soviet forces and of this communist control. It was ultimately a failed revolution. So his article is in reference, of course, to what happened during the revolution and Hungarians pouring over the border of Austria. And it's an important thing because, of course, at this time, Austria and Hungary were very separate countries. But there were still plenty of people alive who knew the historical context, who had been alive when they were part of one empire. Mm -hmm. They were one people. So this is an article that Ernest Pisco wrote, and it was published in the Monitor on December 22nd, 1956. This is the time when people like to stay home near the warm stoves, when parliaments adjourn for a prolonged Christmas and New Year's holiday, and when governments make an effort to keep things quiet. But not so this year. In Austria, where the shockwaves of the Hungarian Revolution have been felt most strongly, people are torn between the dictates of prudence and the pressure of their brotherly feelings for the Hungarians. It would be wrong to say that it was difficult to feel the Christmas spirit. It was not. Not here in Vienna, at any rate. As it was, the Christmas spirit here blossomed ahead of its time, when the first refugees from Hungary arrived. It was true that among the first reactions of the Viennese was apprehension about what was going to happen to them, whether the Soviet troops would respect Austria's neutrality or whether they would experience a repetition of those trying three months from April to July 1945 when the Red Army was in occupation of Vienna. On the 10th, 5th of November, the Viennese by the tens of thousands rushed to the food stores and bought up whatever supplies they could afford to. But this buying spree did not last long. Within a day, they pushed aside any concern about themselves and turned their hearts and hands to the Hungarians who started pouring across the border. If the Christmas spirit is a heightened feeling for one's neighbors and an exultant joy in giving, 
then the Vienna of the last week saw one of the greatest manifestations of this attitude. Thousands of homes were opened to the refugees. Homes not only of families with space and money to share, but of people on a meager income and in cramped surroundings. Whenever I went among my friends and acquaintances, I found Hungarian refugees living with them. An elderly lady living in a two and a half room apartment had taken in eight refugees, a family consisting of a grandmother, an aunt, parents, a sister-in-law, and three children. While she was about to figure out how to bed all of these people down for the night, the superintendent of the apartment house came up and asked whether he couldn't take two of the guests down to his own place. And so it went in all of Vienna's 23 districts. Just remarkable. So he, he was on the scene. Yes. You know. mm-hmm. Eric, as the grandson of these two families, what has been the meaning for you of your grandparents' story, but more specifically that of Risa and Ernest? Well, it makes me think about leaving a country, how you make that decision. Mm. And in Risa and Ernest's situation, the decision was kind of made for them. Right. Ernest was jailed for three months and was released on the condition he'd leave Austria in the next 30 days. So they didn't really have a choice. They didn't have to decide too hard. They knew they had to leave or, or else. The traumas they went through, being jailed for 90 days, is hardly traumatic. Mm. And not being sure what's going to happen to you. My mother and grandmother were put in a cattle car and shipped across the border and forced to walk, losing their belongings, locked in a barn for three days with a number of other people. Mm. And yet, we looked at my parents. They did not appear to be traumatized. They were certainly affected by it, but they regained equanimity. They flourished in the United States, became American citizens. My father served in the U.S. Army back in Germany. Mm. Now they, they paid their taxes, had kids, forged a good life. Mm-hmm. Now Ernest was lucky to get a job as a science monitor. And he was an editor of three newspapers in Vienna. So the journalism was his business. So he was lucky to be able to continue that. The monitor was very important to him. Uh, it was a return to his profession. Mm-hmm. It was dignified. It was what he did. And it's amazing that he learned English in a very, fairly short time. Mm-hmm. And his writing, even at the beginning of the 1940s, his first writings in the monitor were very clear, very, very fluent English. That's quite remarkable. And the monitor was, was his home. Yeah. Eric. You were saying just now that your father had only just recently learned English after a couple of years in English-speaking countries. Now he's writing for the Christian Science Monitor, and yet the writing is powerful. It's clear, as you say. It's very substantial and significant, so impressive that he has this mastery of it. I'd love to share from one piece that really stood out to me from those early years at the Monitor. So this is a biographical account from when he was a prisoner in Nazi-controlled Europe. It's in a piece called The Flower Shall Not Wither, and it was published November 9th, 1940. And he calls out in the article moments that he experienced when he was in captivity, when his country was in captivity to the Nazis, where people who were enforcing the Nazi edicts nonetheless demonstrated sensitivity, expressions of compassion, Decency, humanity. And he writes, quote, One night in November 1938, some 70 of us, 
were driven by Hungarian soldiers into no man's land, prodded by gun butts and bayonets. Among us undesirable foreigners was a little girl of three years, a cute mite with large black eyes, dark curly hair, and a sweet voice. She could not keep up as we walked much too fast. The mother was small and in her early 20s, apparently unable with the burden on her arm to keep up the pace the soldiers forced on us. She stumbled at every second step, and her breath came wheezing. Each of us carried some baggage, and each had trouble enough not to stay behind without trying to help her. Suddenly, one of the soldiers took the child out of her arms. He had the tanned face of a Hungarian peasant, a brown mustache, and pleasant eyes. He held the girl like a man used to carrying children. The soldier next to him wrangled, You fool! Don't you know that's a Jewish brat? Brother, said the soldier with the child, I have a girl of about the same age at home. Why shall this flower wither? Yes, I think that is the point. Why shall the flowers wither? The flower of that little girl's life? The flower of every single human life? The flower of humanity? I often wonder what has become of all those people who, two years ago, struggled not to be drawn into the stream of hate. Are they still helping the victims, or have they become victims themselves? They were true Austrians, for the Austrians formed a human type of their own, just as they developed a culture of their own. It was a culture of heart, rather different from the German intellectual culture. And every Austrian, regardless of his class, had his share in it. The intellect can err for years and years on end. The heart may also err for a short time. Like the plummet, it will always return to the middle line of understanding and justice. I think that's remarkable writing for somebody yes. who's just yes. learned English. Just like, yes. um, you, you must feel very proud, Eric, of your... Yes. Um, you know, of your I, I am. Yeah. His writing is so optimistic. Yeah. You know, there is hope. You know, he's talking about this fabulous Austrian culture, and I think you really get this other side of it, this other sense of it through these recipes that Risa shares. There's this great story, and it's Risa talking about Tyrolean dumplings. Kendra, would you like to share the little story? We won't share the details of the recipe, but the story that goes along with it. Sure. This is from the November 16th, 1967 edition of the Christian Science Monitor, Delicious Tyrolean Dumplings by Risa Pisco. When, after many years of absence, I visited Vienna recently, I was, of course, very curious to see the many changes my friends had told me about. I was also eager to see how living in the States for over 25 years had changed my own ways, my thinking, my habits, and, of course, my cooking. <laughs> now in Vienna, I wanted to taste again the original and compare. Whenever I went to a restaurant, I ordered Austrian specialties. I chose for that purpose small eating places outside of the tourist centers, places where the people go. They are called Gasthaus, Guesthaus. One of the first things I ordered at such a Gasthaus was beef stew with dumplings, both dishes which I frequently make in my home in Boston. The beef stew is not much different from the way I prepare it, and in my judgment, no better. <laughs> but the dumplings were better, far better than mine, 
definitely fluffier and tastier. I did not ask for the recipe in the restaurant, trusting that I would recognize it if I saw it in a cookbook. And I searched for it in a few cookbooks I found in Viennese bookstores, but came up with nothing to resemble the delicious dumplings I had eaten. But then at the airport, as we were ready to board the plane, a cousin of mine rushed up to say goodbye and slipped me a small package. Imagine my surprise when I unwrapped the gift high up in the sky and found a pretty dish towel with the very dumpling recipe printed upon it. (laughs) What a wonderful (laughs) European adventure. Kendra, you've written a lot about food for, for the Christian Science Monitor. Yeah. You know, I couldn't help thinking, Kendra, when reading some of her recipes, that they coincide in time with a huge musical hit. Yes, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, 1965, March, The Sound of Music, a story about an Austrian family, the von Tropps fleeing the Nazi party, Mm -hmm. uh, is just an overnight hit. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the song My Favorite Things includes the lyrics, cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells, and schnitzel with noodles. (laughs) So Rissa Fisco has a number of recipes that relate to the song, if you will, around schnitzels and strudels, etc., while also providing context and color around the recipes. This is from the March 3rd, 1966 edition of the Christian Science Monitor, Crisp Apple Strudel. It rhymes with poodle <laughs> by Risa Pisco. I love that. I love that title. So she writes, apple strudel was a dish that we as children could not resist. And there have been few, if any, among us whose taste for strudel in any of its numerous varieties has palled with the years. Who invented the delicious dessert is not known. All we know is that it is indigenous to Central Europe and ranks among the positive and most durable achievements of the Habsburg monarchy. It probably got its name from the similarity between the swirls on the Danube River and the sight of a strudel being rolled. To navigate the Danube swirls required great skill. So does the rolling of a strudel without breaking the dough and letting some of the filling spill out. Preparing the dough and stretching it to exactly the right degree of thinness is an art bequeathed for generations from mother to daughter. It can be mastered only by practice. To watch such a performance is fascinating, but the opportunities for seeing it are getting rarer and rarer. Mm. Eric, were they getting rarer and rarer in your household? My mother did not make strudel dough. I once asked Reza, my grandmother, to make strudel dough if I could see it. And it was amazing to watch that she made it paper thin by uh-huh. pulling it with her fingers. And it's like five of pastry, paper thin. Wow. And she did that over the whole kitchen table to stretch and stretch and stretch the dough without holes. And wow. made a wonderful apple strudel. Yeah, so it's interesting when thinking about their comparative uh, careers. You know, Ernest really starts off at the Monitor in uh, the early 1940s, 
Whereas for the most part, Reese's contributions come, as you were saying, Kendra, in the mid-1960s. So there's been a little bit of time for Risa in the United States to acculturate. But for Ernest, at the Monitor, when he begins, it really hits very close to home, writing about what's going on in Europe during those dark hours of that period. Eric, could you share an example of Ernest's earliest writing at the Monitor? Okay. This is an article written by my grandfather in November 1940, the first month he was employed by the Monitor. It's called Never to Return. Are you aware that you'll never be able to return to Austria? The man who spoke these words was the uniform of the Black Guards, Nazi elite tube, dark boots, black breeches, and black jacket with silver stripes and small swastika badges on each lapel. Held my passport in his hand, casts a sharp examining eye on me in the train, which left Vienna an hour earlier, and has reached the Czechoslovakian border any minute. At that moment, in the dimly car of the train, I resented that the passport officer had used the word never. With a slight bow, I took the passport and put it in my pocket. Yes, I'm aware, I said, but you see, I would rather be cautious with big words like never. The officer stared at me, and his eyes swept the corner. Nobody was overhearing. Suddenly his face lost his official expression. He smiled. That's right, you never can tell. Look for Sir Isa. Happy journey. He raised his hand in a gesture, which was a combination of the Nazi and the former Austrian military salute, proceeded to the next wagon. Thus, I parted with Austria. Incredible. Of course, the irony of this is that he did return. Yes. And um, did some fabulous reporting from Eastern and Central Europe. Amy, what were some of the more distinguishing markers of his career with the Christian Science Monitor? So a lot of his articles, early on especially, they referenced his past knowledge of political affairs, social affairs, cultural affairs from his experience as a publisher and as an editor to three newspapers in Vienna. And then, of course, after the war, as he returned and Riza often with him to Europe to visit different countries, again, reporting on what was going on politically and socially. And very much in particular, there were a lot of articles as well as book reviews that dealt with Eastern Europe, communist Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, uh, one series of which Ernst uh, received an award for. In addition, the Austrian government awarded Ernst a prestigious award for his journalism and his reporting on European affairs. In September 1962, he received the Golden Honor Medal for Service for the Austrian Republic. And the Austrian foreign minister personally presented him with this award in New York and it was in recognition for all of his articles, so the vast majority for the Christian Science Monitor, that Ernest had written since the end of the war about Austria, its economic situation, its political situation. According to Ernest's daughter, Sue, this was an award he greatly cherished receiving. Yeah, I can imagine. This is an extraordinary accomplishment, it strikes me, to become you know, that, that impressive as a journalist in, in a language he's only learned as an adult. It is very impressive. It, going back to his original articles, 1940, 1941, they're beautifully written, they're descriptive, they're concise. And that this was something that Sue, when writing about her parents years later, was, you know, just really emphasized how impressive it was. You know, she, of course, was young enough to be in school and learn English, but for her parents to start to learn English and for her father to get at such a level of mastery to, to write such excellent articles. 
I believe Ernst was also the first to break news of the attempt on Hitler's life. He had a shortwave radio and listened to German propaganda overnight and report on it. He was the first to report that bit of news. Where, where was he based at that point, Eric? In Boston. In Boston. Yeah. Oh, so he was listening to the, the overnight news service and heard about the attempt on Hitler's life? Well, he was listening to the, the day news. Mm. As he got up at night to listen to the, the news. And he had permission to have a shortwave radio, a receiver only, not a, couldn't, couldn't transmit anything. But how did Ernest actually cover Europe from Boston? A shortwave radio. He listened to the German radio network. And uh, obviously being fluent in German, he could understand it and translate it into English. So he had the German perspective. That's amazing. It really is. Kendra, I'm curious, as someone who's been with The Monitor for some time, how do you see the connection of the journalism of Ernest Piscow, foreign correspondent, book reviewer, hard news in many cases, editorial insight, and that of his wife, Risa, with her recipes, but enfolded in these stories, giving them cultural context? When I was reviewing some of Reese's columns. I was struck by her connection to fond memories mm-hmm. at a time when the world is trying to forget the horrors of war. Right. And in a 1974 letter that she wrote to Phyllis Haynes, who was the food editor at the time, the Christian Science Monitor, publishing in the home and family section mm-hmm. of the paper, Risa explains her personal history around cooking from helping in the kitchen of her large family as a girl, and then later as a way to earn wages when the Piscos emigrated first to England and later to Boston. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, stepping very lightly over the destruction of World War II. And in fact, this is what she says to Phyllis Haynes in her letter. Later on, my cooking knowledge became a real asset for me. That was when Hitler came. I skipped the whole Hitler period in Vienna. It was ghastly. There are enough horror stories told, and no one can fathom it who did not go through it. And I feel like Reese is sort of pouring in, I would call it a healing connection. A a nurturing. um, A nurturing connection. So one example I found particularly poignant and poetic was in an article from actually 1975. So she's still reflecting back on on her childhood called Fresh Apricots Are Best When Ripe to Bursting. Mm -hmm. And it's full of childlike innocence and there's no trace (laughs) of war or hunger in it. And she writes, In my youth in our garden, we had several apricot trees. I remember their splendor in early spring when they blossomed. Later, on hot summer days, we went to the garden looking at the apricots. If we were clever, we managed to be on the right spot when the overripe fruit, heavy with juice, fell down right into our wide open mouths. (laughs) 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 And that's certainly in stark contradiction to the evils that her husband was writing, facing and writing about. And I really feel like Risa's contributions provide a bookend to mm-hmm. the writings of her husband. While Ernest faced outward against the evils of war, Risa was facing inward toward the safety and connection found around the kitchen table. I think together, 
the piece goes embodied the full extent of monitor journalism that tends to not only the head, but also the heart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, on that very point, Kendra, we have these two documents in our collection that pertain to when Ernest is retiring from the paper. And uh, in these documents, you really feel the head and the heart of the Piscos. One of the documents is a memo to the Christian Science Publishing Society, and the other is a thank you letter to his colleagues for the going away party that they threw for him and his wife, Risa. In the memo, he writes, number one Norway Street, and that's the address uh, for the Christian Science Monitor, has been much more to me than a place of employment. It has been my spiritual home. A postgraduate course in journalism and a meeting place with people who have become close and dear friends. And then in the thank you letter, you you feel the same theme coming through. Uh, He writes, 25 years ago, I was a stranger in a strange land. Now, not only do I have American-born grandsons who can explain the intricacies of baseball to their less erudite grandfather, but I myself have taken root in American soil. And for this, I have to thank you too. He goes on then, I also hope that if any of you ever feels like asking Ernie for his advice or opinion, you will not hesitate to dial my phone number at any time between 6 a.m. and 10 (laughs) p.m. I'm not sure he really (laughs) wanted to retire. And also, you know, just a little bit earlier on in the thank you letter, he, he says this. He's noting the date of the party, and he states, from now on, October 19 will be a high holiday for my dear wife and myself. I think I would have loved to have been in the room for that going away party. I was struck by the fact that he's called Ernie at the monitor. (laughs) (laughs) I knew him as Grandpa or Grappy. Yeah. Or as he's Ernest or Ernst in German. And I never thought of him as an Ernie. Right, right. I I can actually confirm that because I have been asking some colleagues here if they had any memory of the Piscos, and and some do, and they all refer to them as as Ernie. Yeah. (laughs) It's a very American good thing to do, right? (laughs) I think that shows the love his colleagues had for him. Yes, kind of an affectionate term. Yeah. Yeah. Kendra, thanks so much. It's wonderful to um, draw on your expertise, your experience in writing about food culture for the Christian Science Monitor, and then also your study in this area, the master's program at University of Massachusetts, Boston. Profound knowledge you brought, and uh, oh, we're well, grateful for it. Oh, well, thank you so much. <laughs> I, I, I'm so grateful to meet the Piscos. I, I wouldn't have known about them, and yeah. they do feel like part of the Monitor family. Thank you so much, Eric. It's just wonderful to um, have you as part of this, to get a sense of the love that was in your family and then how that was expressed through the unique medium of journalism, but also, you know, just through what uh, I imagine were glorious events at the Pisco home with dinner parties and and sharing, you know, food with with others. Yes, she was a wonderful cook, many wonderful dinners and care packages of cookies sent me at college. And thank you so much, Dr. Amy Carney. It's been wonderful having you as part of the recording to draw on your, your scholarship, but also your connection with Eric and just your your love of food and <laughs> and culture. 
Thank you very much. Who'd have thought, you know, getting to to do work and I say, I get to bake. That's work. <laughs> yeah. And enjoy it. Yeah. And share. And share in the spirit of the articles we saw. Baking and sharing. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. And, and just so perfect for the holiday season. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars. As we looked into the profound and unique contributions of a couple who had to emigrate from Nazi-controlled Europe to the United States just before World War II and then found a new opportunity and a new meaning and purpose in working for the Christian Science Monitor. We hope you'll join us for our next episode as we look at the architectural history of a very special building here in Boston, the Christian Science Publishing Society building, which actually is the home of the Mary Baker Eddy Library, as well as of the Christian Science Monitor and the Christian Science Church, its headquarters. It has many stories to tell. So we look forward to sharing that episode with you. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you so much for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2023.